Well, the passage before us today is built around questions. Questions are what give this passage its structure and its shape. Uh, The first question comes when a man goes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with a second question, a question himself. He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Well, the man gives an answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man gives the third question of the passage so far, which is just a few sentences long at this point. He says, who is my neighbor? And that question has reverberated throughout the ages, even unto today. It's one that we can still ask because it has devastating relevance. Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus answers with a story about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, for many reasons, this journey was treacherous. Uh, The road between the two places was nothing more than a rough walking path full of rocks and uneven ground. Uh, It had many sharp turns and switchbacks. Uh, What's more, Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level, while Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level. And so in less than 20 miles, the road drops almost 4,000 feet. The effect is that one is walking down a steep decline. In the text, Jesus literally says, going down. Uh, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you are walking down a mountain on rough and rocky terrain uh, with lots of turns and switchbacks and uneven ground, you would have to take it slow. You'd have to be looking down to watch your step which means that you may not be aware of your surroundings, and all of this together made the road between Jerusalem and Jericho the perfect place for a crime. Robbers and thieves had ample places to wait in ambush. They had easy escape routes over the hills or into the desert where no one would pursue them. In fact, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was known as the Bloody Pass. Well, sure enough, when the traveler in Jesus' story goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho on the bloody pass, he is beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. So thank goodness someone comes down the road who can help. And it's a priest nonetheless. The man is in luck. It's a priest. It's a man of God. But the priest doesn't help. Why? Well, I think the priest was probably worried. What if it's a trick? What if it's a trap? Uh, What if the man on the side of the road is just luring the priest closer so that he can attack him? Uh, What if the priest goes to help the man and robbers jump out from behind a rock? Now, this was a common ploy at the time, and we say similar things here in our day, don't we? We say things like, um, I'm not going to give money to that homeless man uh, because he's probably just going to take it and spend it on drugs. Uh, I'm going to take it and I'm going to buy a new tie. Uh, That's uh, a much better use of money. Or or we say things like, "Um, I'm not going to help the man who comes to me for assistance because the last time I did that, I was just taken for a ride. The priest didn't help because he was worried. What if it's a trick? What if it's a trap? 
Well, thank goodness for the injured man, someone else comes down the road, and it's a Levite, a worker in the temple of Jerusalem. But the Levite doesn't help either. Why? Well, I think the Levite was probably hurried. He wasn't a priest. He was an assistant priest. He was a mid-level manager, and he wanted to rise up the ranks. He wanted to climb the ladder. He had places to go and people to see. He had things to do and deals to make. The Levite wanted to move up in the world. He didn't help because he was hurried. The priest was worried. The Levite was hurried. So each one ignores the injured man. Does anyone know who Nick Saban is? Of course you do. It's probably um, uh, better to ask, does anyone not know who Nick Saban is? Nick Saban is a football coach. He's the head coach of the University of Alabama. Uh, But before he went to Bama, he was coaching the Miami Dolphins of the National Football League. Well, every year the Dolphins held training camp in the summer heat and humidity of South Florida. Uh, There were two-a-days. There were these long, intense practices. One day, Geno James, an offensive lineman, comes back into the locker room uh, after practice, and he begins to feel disoriented. Um, He starts to vomit. Um, And so he stumbles from the locker room down to the training room where he can maybe get some medical attention. Uh, But he never made it to uh, the training room uh, because he began to convulse. And his eyes went back into his skull, and he collapsed right there on the floor of the hallway. Well, Nick Saban was in that hallway. He was walking down the hallway, and he sees all of this take place. And when Saban gets to Geno James lying on the floor, he steps right over him, goes up the stairs to his office. Now, here is a player clearly in need of medical attention, but Nick Saban doesn't stop. Uh, doesn't call for a medic, doesn't even look at him. He just keeps on going, steps right over the injured man. Now, you might expect such callousness from a hard-nosed football coach, a very successful football coach. But a priest and a Levite, I mean, they work in the temple. They offer burnt offerings. They lead people in worship, and they take care of the tabernacle. I mean, we can think of them as pastors and preachers elders and deacons. Years ago, two psychologists at Princeton University conducted a social experiment. Uh, They went next door to Princeton Theological Seminary, and they recruited a group of students. And they gave these students an assignment. We want you to preach a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And of course, they were graded on their work. Uh, And so the students prepared their sermons, and they arrived one by one for their appointments to preach for their instructors for a grade. But when they arrived for their appointments, they were told that the location had changed at the last minute. Uh, The time was the same, but the location was different, and so the students were late. Uh, They had to go to another building, one across campus, to preach their sermons. And so each student left in a dash. Uh, They hurried across campus to get to their appointment. But when they arrived at the building, the new building, they were confronted with something. At the entrance to the building was an injured man, someone who appeared hurt and destitute, uh, in need of assistance. 
Now, unbeknownst to the students, the two psychologists had hired an actor to play the role of an injured man. They wanted to observe the students to see what they would do. Would they stop and help the injured man, or would they just step over him? And keep in mind that these are future pastors and preachers, future theologians and missionaries. Would they behave like a hard-nosed football coach, or would they behave like men and women who have been touched by the grace of God? Well, the results were not flattering. Some of the students stopped to help, of course, but most of them, well over half, did nothing. Some of them literally stepped over the injured man, Nick Saban style. When they went to write their conclusions, the two psychologists had this to say. It seems that altruistic behavior is treated as an option as hurry increases. Even for seemingly moral and religious people, even for future pastors and preachers, ethics become a luxury as the pace of life gathers. Oh, friends, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness in this parable, someone else comes down the road, a Samaritan. In the time of Jesus, there was this great hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, The Jews were members of the nation of Israel, and the Samaritans were not. And like oil and water, the two simply did not mix. A biblical scholar, Joseph Corpora, says, Samaritans were viewed as traitors and defectors from the Jewish religion and aliens and enemies to the Jewish nation. Uh, Those listening to Jesus' story would have found the fact that a Samaritan is the hero of the story totally unacceptable, because the Samaritans were nothing more than the unclean people to the north. In the time of Jesus, Jews felt this hostility towards Samaritans, and yet it's the Samaritan that stops to help the injured Jew. The Samaritan wasn't worried, at least not about himself. The Samaritan wasn't hurried, at least not to climb social ladders. The Samaritan was neighborly. The Samaritan goes to the man and tends his wounds. He picks up the man and places him on his own animal uh, while he walks on the rocky path. Uh, He takes the man to an inn and continues to care for him, and then he goes to the innkeeper with an open wallet. Here is my own money, he says. It's my pay for two days' labor. Take good care of this man, and if you spend anything more than this in taking good care of him, I will cover the cost when I return. Oh, what kindness, what decency, what humanity, and all of it from the most unlikely source, an enemy. Forty years ago, in 1981, an attempt was made on the life of the President of the United States. Ronald Reagan was just months into his presidency. He had just spoken at the Hilton Hotel there in Washington, D.C., and he was walking back to his limousine. And it was then that a man named John Hinckley Jr. drew a gun and fired several bullets, one of which struck Reagan right in the chest. He had broken ribs, a punctured lung, and internal bleeding. 
Well, the president was rushed to the hospital, of course. He was taken directly into an operating room. Doctors and nurses rushed around prepping for surgery while the president lay there on the table waiting. He was injured and he was weak. But before the operation began, he mustered the strength to pull aside his oxygen mask and he looked up at the surgeon who was about to perform the surgery and he said with a smile, I sure hope you're a Republican. (laughs) Now when the injured man in the parable of the Good Samaritan looks up to see who is dressing his wounds and who is raising him onto an animal and who is taking care of him at an inn and who is covering the cost of medical care, he's probably shocked to see a Samaritan. It's not the priest or the Levite. It's not the religious man or uh, the member of the same country, the citizen of the same country. No, it was an outsider, someone who was hated and despised and treated as an enemy. But the Samaritan didn't return evil for evil. He returned evil with good. If we had to describe the Samaritan in one single word, we could say the Samaritan was a neighbor. A neighbor. Friends, what does it mean to be a neighbor? Well, this passage tells us two important things. In these two words and two separate verses that just kind of leap off the page, uh, the first word is in verse 33. It's the word compassion. To be a neighbor, one must feel compassion for others. And I I love that word, compassion. Passion means suffering, as in the passion of the Christ. And the prefix com, C-O-M, means with. Thus, to have compassion for another person is to suffer with another person. It's emotional suffering for someone who is low. That's the first thing that it means to be a neighbor. Uh, The second word that we find that tells us what it means to be a neighbor is in verse 37. To be a neighbor, one must demonstrate mercy. In this passage, mercy doesn't refer to a a juridical mercy. Uh, In the juridical sense, one might think of mercy as pardon for an offense. It's forgiveness, but it's not the case that the injured man on the side of the road had committed a crime against the Samaritan, and the Samaritan showed mercy by pardoning the offense. No, in this context, mercy, the Greek word elios, means an act of help and charity, a kind deed, a demonstrated love, not just a felt love, but a demonstrated love. Oh, friends, we have said that this passage, the one before us today, is structured and shaped with questions. And here we go. At the end of the passage, there is one final question. Jesus says, which one of these three was a neighbor to the man? And the man responds, the one who had mercy, mercy on him. Friends, in telling this parable, Jesus is teaching some profound truths. Jesus is teaching that everyone is a neighbor to us, and we can be a neighbor to everyone. No matter their geographic location, everyone is a neighbor to us. No matter their socioeconomic status, everyone is a neighbor to us. No matter the color of their skin, 
everyone is a neighbor to us. The people in Waverly, Tennessee, even though they don't live on the same street, the people of Afghanistan, though they're from thousands of miles away, the people of Haiti, though they come to us powerless and poor, all of them are our neighbors. Biblical scholar William Barclay puts it like this. He says it so well. Anyone in need from any nation in the world is our neighbor. Everyone is a neighbor to us, and we can be a neighbor to everyone. We can be a neighbor to everyone, including and especially those who are not very much like us, those who are different from us, and those we do not like very much. You know, the Samaritan showed charity to someone who was not like him, someone with whom he had difference. Uh, The Samaritan showed kindness to someone who hated him, and by rights, he could have hated right back. The Samaritan did good, and we are called to do the same. Oh, you may not have wanted them in office, but if they came into your operating room, could you operate on someone from the other political party? You may despise their views on social issues, but can't you show some openness, some friendliness toward those who disagree with you? They may have gossiped about you and run you down to all their friends, but can't you pray for them and their loved ones? Again, biblical scholar William Barclay gives us an exhortation. He says, our help must be as wide as the love of God. And God's love isn't just for a few or for a narrow segment of society. No, there is a wideness in God's mercy. And our help must be as wide as the love of God. Friends, everyone is a neighbor to us And we can be a neighbor to everyone. You know, we have talked a lot about questions today. So let me close this sermon with a question made famous by Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers. Or, you know, maybe I should call him Reverend Rogers. Did you know that Mr. Rogers was a pastor? Yes, he was an ordained minister of word and sacrament in the Presbyterian Church, ordained in the Presbytery of Pittsburgh. Some are ordained to be pastors in churches, and some are ordained to be chaplains in hospitals, but Mr. Rogers was ordained to minister to children through the medium of television. So let me close with a question that he made famous. Won't you be my neighbor? And won't I be your neighbor? Won't we be neighbors to each other and indeed to the world? I hope so. And I pray so because we are called to this. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.